0: Listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio six forty Toronto.
1: Welcome to the program. Is it time to panic? Is it now? Is it time? Is it irresponsible to even ask that? I, this is. I just got this text from my wife who said that she was on the bus on the way in to work this morning. She coughed, and the woman in front of her got up and moved two seats forward. Please remain calm. This is where we are now. This this is where we are. We I mean reg- well, what have we got? A couple of cases here and all of a sudden it's just it's mayhem. It's it's we here is the latest from the WHO. who just updated the world on what's going on with the coronavirus and please please stop posting corona related memes to social media. Quit it. Cut it out. You're not helping. Here's Dr. M- Dr. Michael Ryan who has just returned from China, speaking at the press conference from the World Health Organization. says he's very impressed with the Chinese response. He's never seen anything quite like it in terms of all elements of the government working towards trying to deal with this outbreak. The latest in terms of numbers outside of China. We have 71 cases in 15 different countries. Here is the update from Dr. Michael Ryan.
2: Many people are experiencing a minor form of illness, but still 20% of reported cases are reported as severe, and 2% of confirmed cases are reported uh, to have died. Uh, The disease is obviously a mainly respiratory disease, passing via droplets from one person to the other, and mostly still through close contact. Uh, The source, as we've said before, is still unclear.
1: So the source still unclear, that is Dr. Michael Ryan speaking at the World Health Organization update that just took place in Geneva. To give you a sense of where the cases are, we have about 6,000, just shy of 6,000 in China. In Thailand, there are 14, that is the country with the next highest number of confirmed cases outside of China, Singapore 10 Japan, eight. As you move down the list, the United States, five. And Canada, three. Three. John Tory held a press conference earlier this morning to talk about a number of issues, but he brought up the instance of growing xenophobia in this city about people being concerned. He's actually going to hold a press conference at 1 o'clock today, another press conference, this one at City Hall, to speak further about xenophobia and stigmatization of the Chinese-Canadian community. But he spoke about it this morning, and here's what the mayor had to say
2: there is no excuse for a community in this case the chinese canadian community to be stigmatized or to be treated differently uh, based on the health advice that we've received from our professionals who say yes everybody every single person should be careful and wash their hands and uh, you know be careful with the encounters they have in terms of coughing and uh, with people and all that sort of thing which they should be doing every day anyway but we must not uh, let a uh, healthcare uh, situation here turn into active acts of discrimination that somehow use the healthcare concern as an excuse for that
1: can we just all take a deep breath please remain calm and calm down please remain calm thank you now expected to speak at this press conference is amy go who is listed as the interim president of these chi- of the chinese canadian national council for social justice Now, before I play a couple of clips from Ms. Go, I I want to quantify something here. And that is that as I looked up the Chinese-Canadian National Council for Social Justice, a group that I had not previously heard of, part of the justification or exactly the, I won't say justification, part of its very existence is to shine the light on social injustice against the Chinese-Canadian community. And I say that. Not to take away from what Ms. Go has to say, but rather to give you some context that sometimes I don't think is always there in news coverage. Here's Ms. Goh about what she is hearing from the Chinese-Canadian community here in Toronto already.
3: We are being singled out, that we are going to be the carriers of the virus, that we are responsible for this. And I think it's already happening, unfortunately. And the fact that restaurants are already saying that, you know, customers are not uh, coming. uh, All these are, unfortunately, a repeat of what's happening uh, during SARS.
1: Is fear prejudicing you? Is concern for your safety, for the safety of your children if they go to school Perhaps you've heard of the story of a parental group that circulated a petition north of the city saying that any kids that were returning from China for a vacation for the Lunar New Year should not be coming to school and that the school board instead should ask them to self-quarantine. And the school board responded by saying, absolutely not. That stokes xenophobia, that that marginalizes an entire community. We're not going to do that. At the same time... Put yourself in the position of a parent that has a kid in school and perhaps you just happen to know, you know, that one of the kids in your kid's class just happened, you know, to go back to China for Chinese New Year. I mean, I want to put you put yourself in that parent's perspective Now, you know, are, are they motivated by concern and perhaps irrational fear, as irrational as it might be? And does that dip into xenophobia? I think that's a hard question to answer. Here again is Amy Go. There are those who fall prey to this, and unfortunately,
3: let them let their own fear and concern blind them, and 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 in fact, uh, uh, sort of stop them from being rational. And be, uh, ultimately, have the having this kind of proposal in terms of actions will hurt not just Chinese Canadians but all of us.
1: I think she makes an excellent point there. We cannot allow. Our concern, and e- even if it is justifiable, I mean, you know, I, I've i said on this program before, I have an irrational fear of pandemics. I do. And I have to tamp that down. And I think we all need to do that. Let's find out what's going on at Pearson Airport. Jamie Morocco is a global news reporter is at Pearson, where a number of flights have now been canceled. Joins me on the line. Hi, Jamie. How's
4: it going, Alan? I'm,
1: I'm doing well. What are you hearing at Pearson? Well, I can tell you
4: there's a little bit more, I don't even want to say concern. It looks like there's a little bit more caution here at Pearson than there was about a week ago. I was here kind of the day that we announced that this outbreak was starting to spread, the day that um, the first Canadian patient flew back, and there weren't that many face masks. Now I'm seeing basically one in, I'd say one in three or one in five people is donning a face mask, which is, is totally within the norm. You have to remember that this was a recommendation Um, from the government of Canada, as well as the World Health Organization. So I heard what you were saying previous to me, and it's Don't be afraid of these masks. People are wearing them on that recommendation. Second to this, um, a lot of people have canceled their travel plans, so that has prompted Air Canada to shift some flights around. They've uh, reduced some flights. They won't say exactly how many of their 33 flights that fly to China, but they say uh, the resulting capacity reduction is, quote, relatively small, and those customers who are affected will be notified and provided with alternate travel options. Now, interestingly, British Airways has also suspended flights, but um, a little bit more of a bigger picture, more serious thing. They're saying that they're suspending all flights to and from mainland China after the UK uh, warned against unnecessary travel to the country amid the outbreak. Um, So there's differences amongst airlines. Basically, it's checked to make sure if you're flying to China that your flight is still going. And then lastly to this is uh, the travel advisories have been heightened. Uh, There is that uh, higher risk if you are flying to mainland China, according to the government of Canada. And they are saying, of course, avoid all travel to the province of Hubei. And that does include uh, the main city involved in this outbreak, uh, Wuhan.
1: Uh, Jamie, we don't have a lot of time, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this, uh, kind of more of a personal question. You you have actually mentioned on the radio program before, you you are pregnant.
4: Yes, yes.
1: And you are at the airport. (laughs) And you are talking to people who perhaps have been traveling back from places, perhaps even China. I'm wondering if that weighs on you.
4: You know what? I to be I'll be totally, completely transparent here. I'm actually in um, the departures area, so I have opted not to go to arrivals just um, for safety's sake, because we all know that somebody who's pregnant, their immune system is a little bit down. I'm not wearing a mask because I have to be able to talk to people and be able to talk on air, so I don't get that extra precaution. But I am running back and forth to the bathroom when I can, just to wash my hands. Um, That being said, we have spoken to a variety of people who are leaving or on their way out, and... um, I, I wouldn't say I have a fear. I, I would say that, obviously, I'm concerned for my health and the health of my child because this is a flu-like virus, a pneumonia-like virus, and nobody wants that, especially when they're pregnant or vulnerable. Um, and I would just say protect yourself as per the World Health Organization's recommendations, which is wash your hands, wear a mask, and, um, you know, don't cough on people. I think it's pretty straightforward.
1: Jamie Rucker, I appreciate you taking that question. I appreciate your uh, update from Pearson Airport. Thank you so much. No problem. So I think that's an important thing to just notice there, right? I mean, what did Jamie say? You know, listen to the experts. What should you be doing? Well, go wash your hands. You know, Don't let a rational fear grab hold of you. Even if you are like me and you are given over to that kind of thing, don't let it happen. welcome back to the program i got a fascinating email just popped into my inbox i'm going to read it to you in just a second it is from andy who identifies as a chinese canadian but before i get there i want to update you on this according to the website public health ontario which is updated daily ontario is now currently investigating 23 cases of possible coronavirus infection. That is the update. Of course, we have two confirmed cases now in Canada. And before the break, we were talking about what's going to be happening today at 1 p.m., which is the mayor of Toronto will be holding a special news conference in the city of Toronto to discuss xenophobia and the reaction towards all of this concern about coronavirus and what it means for Chinese Canadians and Chinese Canadian businesses in this city. I'm gonna read you this email from Andy in just a second, but before I get there, here is John Tory talking about the issue this morning.
2: There should be no discrimination against uh, Chinese Canadians or anybody else or their children or their businesses on account of something that our health professionals have told us is entirely manageable as of this moment, just based on common sense, uh, vigilant behavior. And so I would just say that uh, there is no health or any other kind of justification for, for this kind of thing in our city, and that I would urge Torontonians to stand with me. In standing beside and standing behind our Chinese Canadian community and saying we're going to provide support um, as there are very few people who might have traveled to China who might be affected by this but by and large what we're going to do is carry on with our lives and certainly carry on without any stigmatization or discrimination against a community that contributes immensely to the well-being of the city.
1: That is John Tory speaking this morning. The Mayor of Toronto will be holding a press conference at one o'clock today. We will bring you those details here on Global News Radio. He put this as with this story continues to develop. But before the break, I was talking about this development in York region where a petition had gone around that was asking schools to keep any student that had returned from China or from the city of Wuhan or the surrounding province to self-quarantine. And the reaction, the statement from York Regional Pol- uh, District School Board, pardon me, was that they were certainly not going to do this and that this could stoke fears of xenophobia. This could, uh, this could identify uh, Chinese Canadians in- incorrectly, just be the wrong thing to do. And I don't take issue with that, but I, I want to read you this, this just coming into my inbox. Uh, Dear Alan, I am Chinese. I do not think That it is unreasonable for people who have recently returned from Wuhan to self-quarantine. Regardless of your race, if you just came back from Wuhan, you should self-quarantine just to be safe. Obviously, people returning from Wuhan are likely to be Chinese, but it is not racist to ask people recently returning from Wuhan to self-quarantine. Are you willing to risk the spread of the virus just to be politically correct? My email email, by the way, is Alan A-L-N A-L-A-N, as I can spell my own name, A-L-A-N. Carter at globalnews.ca. I just read what's on the teleprompter, folks. That's that's all I do. Uh, let me know your thoughts on that. Interesting. And as we turned our eye to what is going on in Wuhan. We are going to be looking at now what's going on with the Canadians who are there, Canadians who are in China, in that province, and are concerned about what's going on. I can tell you that the first con- group of Japanese evacuees from the virus hit area have now arrived in Tokyo. A dozen of them have cough and fever. Two have been diagnosed with pneumonia. Five of the 206 evacuees have been taken to designated hospitals in Tokyo. What about Canadians? in Wuhan. Here is the Prime Minister speaking about that just this morning.
3: We are working very closely uh, with our consular officials in China. We're listening and concerned about the Canadians who are uh, right now in uh, in the affected zone. Uh, we will look at what we can do. There are many countries uh, looking at different ways uh, to help out. Uh, it is a complex situation, but we're, uh, we're doing everything we can to support Canadians.
1: That is Justin Trudeau speaking this morning in Ottawa. Global news reporter Camille Karamali is looking into Canadians who are in China and efforts to get them out and joins me on the line. Hi, Camille.
5: Hi, Alan. Yeah, just finished a very interesting interview. I uh, was not expecting uh, this side of the coin from a teacher from Toronto in Wuhan, Wayne Uh He said it's best For his family to stay put because he doesn't want to put other people at risk. So we just finished up that interview. Um, So, you know, it seems like uh, we also heard of a family who, uh, a a dad, a software engineer here in Toronto who has his 15-month-old daughter in Wuhan with uh, uh, her grandparents, and they're trying to get her out. Uh, Meanwhile, this uh, teacher here um, Wayne is uh, saying that, you know, it's probably best that he, with his uh, wife and his teenage son, stay put. So uh, it, it looks like um, some are trying to get out while others are not trying to put people at risk, because when you are in a tight-contained area, like a, an airplane, you are risking others. So that's, that's why he says, you know, it's probably best that they just stay where they are for now.
1: Well, how do they describe the scene, where they are?
5: Well, he described it as eerie. Uh, He said it's a bit of a ghost town in some areas. Uh, He was talking about how he went to a grocery store about a week ago and, uh, uh, you know, people were wearing masks and gloves and wearing swimming goggles. Other people are just staying inside like his family. is. He uh, said that uh, what they've been doing is they've been staying indoors, talking to people online, watching videos, movies, news, uh, listening to music. It's it's Got this apocalyptic feel where few people are risking leaving their homes, and when they are, they're they're completely covered uh, with uh, some sort of protected uh, protective devices.
1: Camille Karamali is a Global News reporter. Fascinating interview. I look forward to seeing it and you know, talking more about it tonight on Global News at five thirty and six. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, Alan. Uh, The other thing that's happening today, we want to quickly turn our eye to the education sector and the union representing elementary teachers is going to sit down with government negotiators for the first time in over a month. The government appointed mediator calling both sides back to the table. I caution parents, do not read too much into this. I don't think there's much reason to be optimistic here, a couple minutes ago, Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, was speaking with Global News, and executive producer Jason Chapman has joined me in studio with more on what uh, Minister Lecce had to say.
0: I was fascinated, Alan. Um, I I didn't expect to be, but I'm going to walk through this with you and see what you think about this as well. The education minister says a lot of the same things over and over and over again.
1: His talking points, yes.
0: Yeah. And here, you tell me if you believe that. So let's recap. Basically, uh, Travis Danrajart, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, sat down with the education minister and they went through optimism about these talks. And the minister says he's happy to be back at the table. They then went through all of the issues. Uh, is the minister committed to full-day kindergarten? And the minister says yes. And then Travis said, what well, would you put that in writing and at the bargaining table? And he said, I'm committed to full-day kindergarten. So
1: um, He's committed to full-day kindergarten. He's just not committed to the current makeup of teachers to ECE.
0: That's right. That's exactly that's what we're – I mean, I wish we could just take the veil off and just say, yeah, they would like to get teachers out of – kindergarten classrooms. Well, I wish somebody would just been, say it out loud. There's been
1: widespread criticism since the liberals came up with this That's plan true. that said it was far too expensive and unnecessary.
0: So there's that. Now, this is where I'm intrigued because I'm still not sure and I haven't been sure about what the end goal of the government has been. And now I may have some clarity or I may not. And I'm actually curious on your, your thoughts. Twice in the interview, unprompted, the education minister, Stephen Lecce, said that he's frustrated with the fact that the unions continue to still want to put teachers into senior roles or continue to elevate teachers based on seniority and not merit. So twice he went to that talking point. He was asked by Travis about violence in the classroom and he had this to say.
3: But I think what I'm hearing from educators and frontline staff is more to do. And we're working in good faith through the mediator today to talk about how we can get there. But again, the commitment that I'm making is to listen, and to act accordingly to help improve the student experience. What I need the union for EDFO to do today, uh, in good faith, is make some progress when it comes to making a move. They've entrenched their positions, and in fact, Travis, they've actually added, in the public discourse at least, new demands, and one of which I read on social media recently is a demand for the uh, government to now protect 100% of hiring based on uh, seniority, not on merit. And I think it just goes to show that that is probably not going to get us the deal parents deserve. We've got to be reasonable. And at this juncture, we just got to be focused on keeping kids in class. Okay.
0: Remember, the question was about violence in classrooms? Mm-hmm. Back I, again to that talking point. I am fascinated by that, Alan, because I've been asking myself what is the government's end game? And if the government's end game is some sort of union quote unquote bust, I, I think I, I, you tell me what you think am I off my rock or is this what it's about? Is it about changing the way fundamentally what unions are doing with teachers in this problem I, I don't
1: believe I don't believe that's on the table. I know that it is a portion of what they talk about every time. I think that, sure. that I think that's ballast really in mm. the negotiations and and I I think it's also in a chance again it it's one of those things that resonates really well I'm sure they have polling information that says this is the kind of thing that ticks people yeah, off Yeah say
0: this and people will get on your
1: side right, right. and and I think that's an easy win that's low hanging fruit and that's what the minister is doing there
0: So you think ultimately the main goal at the education at the elementary level is to get teachers out of kindergarten classes that's what the, the that's what the government really wants to do through this process they they,
1: they they basically they want to make sure that they get the wage increase under 1%, yep. 1% or less. They want to be able to ratchet down investment. They want to be able to ratchet down the number of teachers. And 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 that all has a cascading effect. Now, yep. you can look at that as a cut to education. You can look at that as a streamline, and I think there are two ways to look at it. All right, Jason Chapman, I appreciate you being with me. Thank Pleasure. you so much. Thank all right. you, sir. Welcome back to the program. Premier Doug Ford has now called a pair of by-elections. They are sent to go on February the 27th. It is for the seat of Ottawa Vanier, which has been vacant since the summer when Liberal Natalie de Rosier resigned. And Liberal Marie-France Lalonde left Orleans in October to represent that riding feb- uh, federally. So two by-elections in Ottawa, both of those ridings are longtime liberal strongholds expected to probably keep that way. I don't think it is going to change the makeup of the legislature in particular, just bring the liberals back up to, I believe, seven, eight now, I guess, with the uh, defection of Amanda Simard from the PCs, who then went to sit as an independent and has now formally joined the Liberal Party. South of the border, President Donald Trump has signed off on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement in a ceremony held on the White House lawn. A lot of applause, a lot of pens being handed out. Uh, Trump signing the implementation bill, which cleared Congress two weeks ago, and it leaves Canada now, is the only member of the trilateral deal that has yet to ratify the agreement, and that process is expected to begin as early as today. Meanwhile, the impeachment trial, getting spicy, getting spicy. Here's Jackson Prosco talking about the upcoming book from former security advisor John Bolton and how the announcement that Bolton is willing to testify in front of the Senate after keeping mum during the House trial, during the uh, proceedings within the House, now says he will testify if asked in front of the Senate. And then he's got a book, and he says, what's well, going to reveal all this stuff in the book. What does that do now to all of the machinations and the calculations for the Republican Party?
5: He is making a direct link here. He is saying that the aid to Ukraine was withheld specifically because Trump wanted to pressure Ukraine to investigate his rival, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter Biden. He's making that perfectly clear, and that directly contradicts everything Trump's impeachment defenders have been saying on the floor of the Senate in his defense. They've been arguing there was no link whatsoever. You can't prove a thing.
1: That is Jackson Prosco, who is the Global National uh, Bureau Chief in Washington, who has been closely following all of this back and forth you know sometimes i don 't know if you 're like me I, I just sometimes I just get to a point where I tune out what 's going on it's, It can be fascinating, obviously. But it just gets that sense of like, well, you just call me when there's something important that I got to pay attention to. Because the minutiae, I mean, I love the minutia of provincial politics is the irony of that. But the minutiae of American politics doesn't quite grab me to, same, to the same degree. But I am fascinated to find out what is going to happen in terms of the Republican vote in the Senate. Will they allow john bolton to testify because if they do that could change everything altogether and yesterday mitch mcconnell basically came out and warned the republican party they may not have the votes and i think that probably that is a move just to scare the bejabbers out of the senators the republican senators to say you better step in line here again is jack jackson Prosco.
5: Rich McConnell, the Republican majority leader, apparently told his colleagues last night that he does not right now have any way to guarantee that witnesses will be blocked. In other words, he doesn't have enough votes in his corner. So Republicans are sort of weighing the odds here uh, heading into elections. They've got to worry about their own political fortunes as senators. And they have to calculate, you know, does it backfire more if they don't call witnesses and they just speed this thing along? Or does it backfire if they do call witnesses and then are seen to be sort of protecting the president? It's, It's really a tough calculation.
1: And it is going to be fascinating to watch. That is Jackson Prosco, Global National's Washington Bureau Chief. Have you ever traveled to Rome? you ever had a vacation to Rome? Many, many, many moons ago, I was there. You know, I sat on the the Trevi Fountain on the edge, tossed a coin in the fountain. Three coins in the fountain. Uh, But I didn't go swimming in the fountain. Well, now, authorities in Rome are so concerned... With the behavior of tourists, who apparently have decided to just take plunges in all the fountains, that they've roped off the majority of them. And that has annoyed the locals to no end.
3: Many here in Rome are upset at a city decision to keep tourists away from the Trevi Fountain, made famous by Fellini film La Dolce Vita, where bombshell Anita Ekberg and Marcello Mastroianni take a midnight dip. We're used to access to this important fountain, says this woman, to be able to sit on its edge and to even touch the water. All these protective measures ruin that. She's referring not just to the new barrier, but to fines of $500 for dipping your feet in the fountain. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome.
1: Get your stink feet out of my fountain. Please remain calm. Remain calm. Welcome back to the program. Quickly want to get you updated on a couple of things happening in the courts right at this very hour. If two cases underway, they want to keep an eye on. There's a sentencing hearing underway for the two men found guilty of sexually assaulting and drugging a 24-year-old woman at the former College Street Bar in December of 2016. At the end of November 2019-11, jurors found Gavin McMillan and Enzo de Jesus Carrasco guilty of gang sexual assault and administering a stupefying drug in connection with the hours-long incident that took place inside the bar in December of 2016. And this just in from the court from our Catherine McDonald, who is covering the case today. The Crown is asking for 12 years in jail, and the maximum sentence for gang sex assault is 14 years. Again, that sentencing hearing is underway. Also interesting to note, you may have heard me talking recently about the a case in the, the Ontario Supreme Court and the Superior Court pardon me that has overturned a murder verdict saying that the choice of jurors the way the jurors were selected was not constitutional it appears that this case The case in the College Street Bar may be heading in the same direction, regardless of what happens in sentencing. Also, closing arguments are beginning today in the trial of a Toronto police officer and his brother accused of beating Defonte Miller, a young black man. That incident happening three years ago. The constable was off duty when he and his brother encountered Miller in Whitby in the early hours of December 28th. 2016 the brothers are jointly charged with aggravated assault in the incident that caused miller who was 19 at the time to lose a left eye both men have pleaded not guilty to the charges and miller's lawyers have alleged outside of court that race played a role in the attack fraser snowden is a global news reporter joins me on the line you're covering the case hi fraser how are you doing alan i'm well what are you expecting today out of court
3: well, I don't think we're going to expect uh, any decision or anything like that right now. Uh, we just actually finished hearing from the Crown, Linda Shin, and uh, and of course uh, the defense lawyer Lacey, and it's it's two competing narratives. You have one where there's a story where the um, the officer and his brother, you know, say they were in the garage and their own business noticed uh, that Miller was allegedly trying to steal from cars. A chase ensued, and then of course, we all know what happened afterwards and then Miller, who claims that uh, there was absolutely absolutely nothing like that happened, and they were just uh, walking down the street and, um, and then claimed that they picked up a pipe and began beating him now that's the you know the competing question is where the pipe actually came from. And, you know, both sides have had, uh, you know, issues with inconsistencies with their stories. And and we're kind of hearing that over again here in court today.
1: Fraser, well, there has been a lot of coverage about the racial aspect of this. Um, and as I mentioned in my preamble, Miller's lawyers have spoken outside of court, saying that race played a role in the attack and also in the alleged cover-up of it. Has there been any submission in court to that effect?
3: We haven't actually heard any of that today. Um, This is my first time actually covering the trial. We had our Brittany Rosen covering it, and I don't believe it was actually mentioned in court, but there is definitely representation from uh, uh, different groups that believe that that did play a role, but that hasn't actually been mentioned in court.
1: Fraser Snowden covering the sentencing, or rather the closing arguments, pardon me, in the case of the assault of Defonte Miller. Thank you, Fraser. Appreciate you being on the program. You're welcome. Bye now. Turning our eye to what happened in this country three years ago, it was the evening of January 29, 2017 at the Islamic Cultural Center in Quebec City, when six worshipers were killed and 19 others injured when a man walked in and opened fire. He began shooting shortly before 8 p.m., just after the end of evening prayers. Alexandre Bissonnet has pleaded guilty to the killings. Last year, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 40 years, a sentence that has been the subject of appeals by both the Crown and Defense during a hearing at the Court of Appeal in Quebec on Monday. From Amara Algawabi, a human rights advocate, writing in the star three years ago little three years on pardon me little has changed to assure us that no other community will ever again be targeted based on religion ethnicity gender and sexual orientation or on any other characteristic too little has changed Amira joins me on the line now hello welcome to the program
6: thank you for having me Alan
1: what do you mean when you say three years on nothing or little too little has changed
6: well, there was a moment, Alan, uh, when this horrible massacre took place where, you know, Canadians right across the country were absolutely shocked and um, dismayed that such a horrific attack could have happened. And certainly, uh, you know, in the days and weeks that followed, you know, we saw vigils, we saw outpourings of support from fellow Canadians um, of all representations and communities, and it was really quite something. Um, even within Quebec, we saw politicians and media personalities really speaking out um, against a climate that many had admitted uh, in that province particularly was quite Islamophobic, where there was a lot of very negative rhetoric around uh, Quebec Muslims. Um, and, and for a moment, there's a lot of hope that, um, you know, we were really going to start understanding that Islamophobia is, uh, you know, a form of discrimination in this country that many people do experience and had this deadly manifestation uh, that night three years ago. Um, but since then, um Unfortunately, there really has been a lot less action when it comes to, you know, dealing with, for instance, online hate. How we are holding social media companies accountable for the types of hateful content that people can still see. Like at any moment, you can probably log into your Facebook or social media account, and you can easily find uh, very derogatory, divisive, even violent threats made against either Muslims or other communities. Um, you know, we've been talking about the Holocaust, the 75th anniversary of the Holocaust, and what led to that, the same kinds of divisive rhetoric, this harmful, violent nature uh, of content is still available. So that's one thing that hasn't really changed. And, you know, we hear a lot of promises from the social media companies, but we're waiting for the federal government to do a bit more on that, for instance. Um, And there are other things, too, that I talk about in the article in the Star today. Uh, When we talk about, for instance, you know, what are we doing around anti-racism policies in our schools, uh, in our cities, in our municipalities, there can be more done. Um, But unfortunately, it's sort of the, the... Appetite seems to have waned since that horrible tragedy, and polls are showing that you know a lot of Canadians think, oh, there's there's not really a big problem of racism in this country. And and the reality is that, no, very many communities, uh, based on different characteristics, are still experiencing discrimination, and we still need to have a very important conversation about how we're going to deal with it.
1: Speaking with Amira El-Gawabi, who's a human rights advocate, and you mentioned your piece in The Star, and you mentioned polling, and I'll read a portion from your article where you write, That an Ipsot poll recently found that 49% of Canadians don't believe that racism is a problem. This, while a joint study by Angus Reid and Cardus found that 41% of Canadians consider the presence of Islam damaging to Canada. So I guess your point is, how do you square those two things?
6: Absolutely. You know, I think uh, I think it's really important that we talk about the fact that, um, you know, various studies have shown that uh, Muslims in this country are experiencing various forms of Islamophobia, you know, the very worst of which is what we saw that night, um, and what we hope we never see again, the worst massacre at a place of worship in the history of this country. Um, but on the day-to-day, we have reports of, you know, myself, I wear a hijab, a headscarf. Uh, you know, I've had people yell at me to take it off. I've had cars and trucks. Okay swerve towards me as though they're going to hit me and then swerve away suddenly trying to scare me, for instance. You know, we have these types of things happening to people, uh, unfortunately. And while we we do believe, you know, Canada is uh, generally a welcoming place, a multicultural place uh, where people appreciate the diversity that the country has and the strength that brings to our society, uh, unfortunately, there's still these pockets of uh, racism that exist amongst us. And um, unfortunately, we need to keep talking about it. The other thing I mentioned, the piece is Quebec. You know, there's legislation now where people who wear religious clothing can't hold certain positions of authority. um, And that sends a terrible message about second-class citizenship and how some people can be discriminated against. So we're a long way away from, you know, really building and nurturing a society where everyone feels uh, that they can contribute positively, regardless of their characteristics, regardless of who they are, that they can celebrate and embrace that, and the rest of society will embrace them right back.
1: Much about what happens in society is about remembering and who gets to write what we remember and what we remember and, and what we mark and, and celebrate. And I, I'm, I'm struck three years on that this attack does not have the resonance in Canadian society as a whole as perhaps it should.
6: That's absolutely true. Honestly, I mean, it's wonderful that you you know you're having this discussion on your program, and, and I and I really uh, thank you for that because I think that many Canadians still need to talk about these things. You know, we know that children in schools are facing discrimination for various reasons as Muslims or as other minority minority communities. We need to talk about these things. And this massacre, as I said, it was a, is a horrible um, blight on our history, and it's something that you know you know is barely being mentioned today. You know, even though it's only been three years. And and I think what we need to talk about is how do we designate this day as a national day of action and remembrance against Islamophobia? How do we make this an annual event, just like we do with the uh, the terrible massacre that happened 30 years ago in Montreal against women, where 14 women were killed at the Polytechnique? How do we, you know, we keep learning every year about violence against women, and that's an important thing. That's a way to, to sort of, you know, make sure that the memory of those women are not forgotten and make sure that we as a society, Society keep moving forward to address violence against women. Similarly, we need to move forward as a society to address discrimination against all people, including Islamophobia.
1: Amira Gawabi is a human rights advocate, and her important piece can be read in the Toronto Star today. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you so much.
6: Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you.